Our scripture reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 15 and 1 Kings chapter 5. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? The Lord. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month, so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workers. At the king's command, they removed the from the quarry large blocks of high-grade stone to provide a foundation of dressed stone for the temple. The craftsmen of Solomon and Hiram and workers from Byblos cut and prepared their timber and stone for the building of the temple. Amen. Amen. Hello and welcome, and especially for those of you who are guests today, of course, welcome again. As you can see, we are in the middle of a series called The Story of the Bible. We're looking at how what we call the Bible came from and what the big picture is. So let's just catch up real quick, like, shall we, for all of those of you who are new and just joining us. Here's where we've been. We began by looking at creation. We saw how God made the world from love, not from violence or power. And then we saw the catastrophe that humans brought into the world through sin. Then we saw how God began to rescue the world. Start over again with one, name, name, one man named Abraham, and he called him through the calling of Abraham, God said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Then he formed Abraham's descendants into a community, a community that was meant to be a light to the world. And then last week, we saw the period of the conquest where the nation of Israel moved into their promised land to be that light and to live by God's law. And by the way, and right away, if that word conquest offends you, then good, good in a way, it should. Uh, But if you missed last week, you should totally go and listen to our podcast. You might think about it in a different way. But this week, and here's where we are today, we're going to see the story of the crown. This story, not that story, it's not that show, not that one, but it's a different story about a different crown with different rulers and kings and queens. And the reason that I love doing this and telling this story is because while many of us may know some Bible stories... Not all of us know the story of the Bible. And when you don't know the whole story, the big picture, it gets real easy to dismiss the stories that we we don't like or that we don't understand. But I think, I think, if we were really honest today, and if our culture were really honest today, that we could say honestly, like Mark Twain, some of you know Mark Twain, uh, writer, not a Christian, uh, but he said this honestly. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. 
And I think if we could just extend that honesty for a moment, we would see that Twain's thought really exists throughout history. And here's what I mean. I mean that at the core of the story of the Bible, there's this really great claim. It's the claim that throughout all time, all space, all history, all of your life, all of my life, that everything is really about a bigger story. It's about a bigger power, something bigger than ourselves. And put another way, you could say it like this. The story of the Bible is really a story of a threat to somebody's power somewhere. Somebody's power somewhere. The story of the Bible is a threat to power. And when you, depending on where, when you live or where you are or where you're from, it threatens power in different ways. For example, in the first century, and you know this, Christianity was seen as a threat to political power, to the state of Rome. And so the emperors executed en masse the followers of Jesus. Fast forward. In the Enlightenment era, Christianity was seen as a threat to one's intellectual power. And so people like our president, Thomas Jefferson, cut out the parts of the Bible that were about the supernatural. That's Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Cut out the parts that were about the supernatural and miracles because he was so offended. There was a claim to a greater power than his own reason He used his reason to get rid of that threat. Fast forward to today. We're offended by the Bible because the claims of the story of the Bible are a threat to our personal power, the power of our own personal choice. We don't like it when the Bible says we just can't choose that or this or do what we want in some way. Again, I think it's like Twain said. It's not the parts that we don't understand that bother us. It's the parts we do understand. And Thomas Nagel, he was a philosophy professor at NYU. He was an atheist professor, and he was, to his credit, also brutally honest about this. He echoes Twain here. He said, quote, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I have a cosmic authority problem, and I don't think it's rare. I doubt whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God or not. Now, I really appreciate, I hope you do too, his honesty in saying this because he's putting into words the challenge that every single one of us, every single person has, which is this. How are we going to respond to a power greater than us. How are you and I going to deal with our cosmic authority problem? And to answer that question, let's look at the story of the crown in ancient Israel as a case study because we're going to see how they try to deal with their cosmic authority problem then and see what that shows us about us. Fair enough? Here's how that story goes. Let me tell it. Up to that point, up to this point in the story of the Bible, God himself, and you know this if you've been following along, God himself has been king over the nation of Israel. They've had no human king to rule them. They've only had judges to lead them. Uh, Judges who could point the way to God and point the people to remember the covenant they had made with God at Mount Sinai. And you said, well, man, shoot, if I was in the desert and dying, I'd make a deal with God too. Maybe some of you have, you know. that, That wasn't what all that was about. They said, no, God, you have rescued us from slavery. We love you. Thank you. We are all yours. We're in on that covenant. 
But after they got into their land, after they got that J-O-B, after they got paid, after they got theirs, after they got that land and house and vines and vineyards and mom's happy and the kids got toys and they got sports leagues going and all that good stuff, they started asking, well, who really needs God to rule us? All the other nations have a human king. Hmm. We want us one of those. Why? Because it's always easier to have a king that you can see than a king that you can't. It's easier to have an idol you can bow in front of than a god that you can't see. And so what launches the story of the crown, the monarchy in Israel, is this moment we're about to look at here. It wasn't in your reading. This is extra bonus content. You're welcome. Here in this moment, now, the people of Israel, they gather around someone named Samuel. He's their last judge, their final greatest judge. And they demand that he anoint a king to rule them. But Samuel knows what they're doing. He knows what they're doing with their cosmic authority problem. And so he talks to God about it. Here's what it says, 1 Samuel 8. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Always a good idea, right? But And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly. Let them know, Samuel, what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel does this. He said, listen, y'all, you don't want anybody but God to be king over you. In the end, whatever you get will only be a downgrade from what you got. You want a human king? Do you know what human kings do? I mean, come on. He says, and he tells them, they're going to take your sons, make them be uh, soldiers in the army and die in battle. They're going to take your fields that you have tended, and he's going to claim them for his own. He's going to take your daughters, make them to be servants in his palace. And in the end, Samuel says, if you choose this, if you deal with your cosmic authority problem by following a substitute king, If you do this, here's what Samuel says will happen in the end. You yourselves will become his slaves. So what did the people of Israel do with their cosmic authority problem? They rejected God as their king and they asked for a substitute king. So sort of to paraphrase your good friend and mine, Dr. Phil, let's find out how that was working for him. Hmm? How did that work for them? Let's see. Let's tell the story of the crown in three parts by looking at these first three kings of Israel. Here we go. Number one, let's look at the fall of Saul. Now, this man named Saul, you may know, he was Israel's first king, and he starts off decent enough. But then to quote the song and the show, he goes eastbound and down. Sorry about that. Sometimes you get Kendrick Lamar here. Sometimes you get Smokey and the Bandit. But anyway... Come back next week, you'll get Tyler Perry and Medea, and that's true. But anyway, uh, but here, Saul goes downhill and dark. How did Saul fall? Well, this is a great book Carrie and I came across a few years ago called Raising Great Kids. It should be called Raising Great Humans. Anyway, uh, it's by Henry Cloud and John Townsend because it's about us as well. They're these two Christian psychologists, and they basically say that there are these six main building blocks to your character and to mine. And these, these are the ones they list. It's connectedness, responsibility, reality, 
competence, morality, and worship. Connectedness, responsibility, reality, competence, morality, and worship or spirituality. And here's their argument. They say that we tend to, when it comes to a person's character, when it comes to your character and mine, they say we do one of two things. Either we say about a person who fails, who hurts us, who are having a hard time with, we say that person has terrible character. They're just a bad person. Or we say about ourselves, how could someone possibly say my character isn't good? You know, I'm faithful to my spouse. I don't steal company pins. Man, I mean, I pay my taxes or tie, whatever. I'm a person of good character. They say we either, we tend to reduce others or we inflate ourselves. But they argue, that's way too simplistic. And of course, we know this. They say your character in mind, they they argue, is formed of these six main building blocks all together. And then here's the problem. This means we can be not just good, but maybe even great in five out of the six. But if we have even one of these areas out of whack, out of alignment, not right, not whole, in the end, that one area can become the hole that sinks the ship. And insisting, therefore, that we're a person of great character because we have five out of the six that are good and ship-shaped would be, they say, like a captain that points to his ship, but it's got a huge hole in the boat, and then saying, look at all the parts that aren't leaking, right? Like 95% of my boat is not a hole. Meanwhile, the water's pouring in. We'll be fine. They say, oh, what is that? That's not the truth. The truth is that one hole is enough to sink one ship. And in one area of your character that's not right in your life, that's enough to sink you and sink me. And it was in Saul's life as well. So how did Saul fall to answer the question? He had a character flaw that got exposed. What was it? It was that number three right there. Saul had a lack of reality. He wasn't honest about who he was and what his actions were. Think about it. In our story, what happens? Well, God tells him, he said, go bring justice to the wicked Amalekites. Don't have time to get into that. You can look at last week to get some context. But God tells him, you can't enrich yourself, Saul, through the, through the uh, execution of justice to the Amalekites. But Saul disobeys. He keeps Agag, the Amalekite king, for himself as a trophy in order to gloat. God says you can't do that. And then the people just follow in his actions. They keep the animals alive, which was an ancient form of currency. And so the people themselves are now profiting off the justice system. Good thing that never happens today either, right? Yet now, when Samuel, now Samuel the judge, arrives on the scene, what does Saul say? I mean, look at how out of touch with reality he is. It says, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you the Lord, right? I mean, good morning, brother. How are you doing? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm doing good. You good? We good? All right. We're good. Ship shape. Blessed are you the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Hang on. Saul, you carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? In other words, he's saying, Saul, if you've heard the voice of the Lord, why do I hear sheep? What's Saul doing? He's not being honest with himself. Honest with what reality is and not being honest with ourselves and with God about who we are and what our actions are is a really, really big problem. 
the first town in Germany, a World War II area, with a concentration camp that was liberated uh, after World War II was Ordruf. And, and when the, the Americans got to the camp, there were a number of prisoners still alive that the Germans hadn't executed yet. But the German guards knew there was still evidence of what they had done in the camp. So in an attempt to cover up what they had done, the Germans made those prisoners, basically their slaves, exhume more than 2,000 dead bodies from a mass grave, and they tried to incinerate them before the Allies got there. But they had to flee before they could burn all the bodies. And when the American soldiers got there and they saw the bodies piled up in the ovens waiting to be burned, they couldn't believe it. Of course, they'd never seen anything like it. Two hours later, General George S. Patton got there. And when he got to the camp and he inspected it, he promptly vomited. George Patton, right? I mean, they called him old blood and guts. Couldn't take the side of it. And when Patton began to question the few survivors there and ask him, what happened? I mean, I mean, how did this happen? Who knew about this? They said, well, every night, the survivors said, the guards went back into the town of Ordruf to, to, to drink, uh, to womanize, uh, to, to brag. And the people there must have known what was going on. And so Patton went over into the German town and he asked him, do you know what was going on in the camp? Did you know what happened? And they said, no, we didn't know. They said, we had no idea. So Patton said to the mayor and the mayor's wife and all the able-bodied townspeople, he said, whether you knew or whether you didn't know, tomorrow you are going out of that camp and you're going to look at it and you are going to bury your fellow citizens. And so they did. The next day, the mayor and the mayor's wife went there and all the folks in town spent the next day inside the camp. They saw these emaciated, dying prisoners. They saw the graves and some of the burned bodies. And they went home that night and the mayor and the mayor's wife hung themselves. They left a note, and this is what their note said. They said, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. Let me ask you, what, what do you know God is asking of you that you're not doing? What are you choosing not to be honest about? For some of you, reality is the hole in your boat. You can't understand why people don't see you maybe as great as you see yourself. Do you know why that is? Here's why. It's because when we can't be honest or can't handle reality, it's because we have a false front like Saul is doing here because earlier in the story it says he built a monument to himself. That's what starts the whole story. And when you have a monument to yourself, what do you have to do? Well, you got to do things that are in keeping with your monument. That's why Saul has to keep this king alive because when you got a monument you got to have come pe- people come and see it. Because if Saul keeps Agag alive, wouldn't that make him the king of kings? Yeah. See, underneath a lack of reality, a lack of honesty about who we are as a monument to self, we got to portray a certain image of the world. Be the man. Be the woman. Be right. Listen, I want to tell you something today. Hear me. It's okay to fail and call it a failure. It's okay Everybody fails. Everybody fails. Everybody needs help. Everybody needs a Savior. That's why God sent Jesus. Right? Do you know what you have then when you can't be honest with God about who you are? You have a substitute king in your life. And here's what a substitute king looks like. A substitute king in a person's life looks like a lack of reality. 
That's the first king. That's Saul. Let's go on and look at number two, David. Uh, David comes next. He's Israel's second king. He rises and Saul dies. David rises to power. He unites the 12 tribes. And now Israel, man, they're starting to cook with gas a little bit, right? They're doing better. David loves to worship. He, he brings the ark to Jerusalem. He secures his nation's borders, showing you that God's promise to give Israel a home and a land has come to pass. It's come true. But David, as great as he was, had a problem too. He had a hole in his boat as well. And if Saul's hole looked like a lack of reality, being able to deal with it, David's hole his lack of character was that fifth one on our list. He had a lack of morality. Morality. Yeah, he had a heart of worship. Oh, yeah, God, man after God's heart. But he didn't have a healthy conscience. He didn't have righteous ethics. And so, so you know the story. Out of this, David then commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He has her husband killed to cover it up so he can have her for his wife. Not good. That's almost as crazy as bribing admissions counselors <laughs> and team coaches to let your kids into the school then paying them to cover it up. Oh, wait, that's, that's bad too, right? But listen, this, this is stunning here, right? I mean, David, he's the one, come on, who writes Psalm 40. I desire to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Oh, really? So where was that law when David's doing this? How do the mighty fall? How does a person's morality become compromised? Years later, a few years after Ordruf and World War II ended, there was this Jewish psychologist named Stanley Milgram. And he asked a question. He said, could the Holocaust then, could it happen here in America? Could it happen in the U.S.? And people said, no way. That's Nazi Germany. We're too good for that, right? That was 1939. No one could do that today. He said, well, he said, let's say Hitler asked you to electrocute just one person. Would you do it? People said, no, I would never do that. That's terrible. I'm a good person. And so Milgram set up this experiment. It's controversial. For a thousand smart, educated people in New England, you know, our best and brightest. And here's what he did. He paired two volunteers together in a room. And there was a learner and a teacher. And the learner was tied up to a shock apparatus in another room. And the teacher was told by an authority, the guy running the experiment in the lab coat, they said, your job, teacher, as teacher, is to give the learner something to learn. And if the learner gets it right, reward him. If he gets it wrong, press a button on the shock box. The first button is just 15 volts. He or she won't feel a thing. And later, a guy named Philip Zimbardo, a professor at Stanford, he looked at that study. He wrote a book about it called The Lucifer Effect. And this is what he said. He said, that's the key. All evil starts with 15 volts. And then the next step is another 15 volts. The problem is at the end of the line, it's 450 volts. And as you go along, the guy is screaming, I got a heart condition. I'm out of here. Oh, but you're a good person. You complain. Sir, who will be responsible if something happens to him? The experimenter says, don't worry. I'll be responsible. Continue, teacher. And the question is, who would go all the way to 450 volts? As it turns out, in study after study, time after time, almost everybody did. Men and women alike. One 15-volt choice at a time. 
So what was David's 15-volt choice that sets his whole thing with Bathsheba in motion? It's this we see in 2 Samuel 11. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings, what's David, a king, goes off to war, David didn't. He sent out Joab with the king's men, the whole army, but oh, David remained in Jerusalem. This is a storyteller's way of telling you David was supposed to be doing one thing, oh, but he let go of it. He knew he, was, he knew he should go, knew it was his job, but he sent somebody else to do what he should have done. And now, here's the picture, he's all alone, no accountability, and what does he do? He sneaks a peek at one naked woman, and that one look brought his whole life crashing down. So 80 song says one thing leads to another. One small bad choice led to another, led to another, led to another, which led to David going down a very dark path. He became what he swore he would never become, right? I mean, now he's just like Saul. He's a king who kills his own people. Like a volunteer who swore they would never become Hitler, but they did. That's how kings fall. That's how our morality is compromised. One small 15-volt choice at a time. David's got a substitute king in his life. He becomes the law, not God. He decides what's right and wrong for himself, not God. And therefore, a substitute king in a person's life looks like a lack of morality. A substitute king in a person's life looks like a lack of morality. Number three, (laughs) it's not going to get better. Uh, The end with Solomon. Solomon. Years later, after this, David dies, and one of his sons with Bathsheba named Solomon becomes king. And, of course, Solomon was legendarily wise and legendarily wealthy. I mean, he talked like partying like a rock star, living like a king. It was this guy. And during his reign, little Israel, once just his little family of Abraham's folks, are now extraordinarily powerful. They're the jewel of the Middle East. Royalty comes to see them from all over the world. They're a playa on the national stage. And now that they've made it, now that God's promises to Moses, Abraham, David have come true, what's going to happen now? Water now is going to come through the hole in Solomon's boat. Solomon's got a character flaw too, the character flaw of connection. Connection. He never attaches to his own people. You can see it if you read his story. He doesn't care about others' needs, others' wants. He only cares about what Solomon wants. And we see this coming true in one of the most tragic, one of the most ironic moments of all the Bible. We see Solomon in his rush, in his desire to build a temple for the God who once upon a time freed the slaves, Solomon now makes slaves of his own people. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men, sent them off in shifts to foreign lands. Adoniram, in case you missed it, was in charge of the forced labor. He turns his own people into slaves, building a temple for the God who never asked for it, by the way, for the God who frees slaves. How ironic. Why did Solomon do this? So, well, why does anyone ever do anything unjust? It's because he had his own substitute king. Because when you don't care about others, you only care about yourself. See, a substitute king in a person's life looks like a lack of connection with others. 
And the people never forgot after this. They never forgot what Solomon put him through. And when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam comes to power, the people beg Rehoboam to lighten the load, to end the forced labor. But he can't stop, won't stop. He needs slaves to keep up his lifestyle. The people riot. The nation splits. And for the rest of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, they are never one nation again, always to Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Truly, therefore, In the end, Samuel's words came true. And in the end, he said, you will become his slaves. Slaves. You will become his slaves. You say, what kind of a story is this? (laughs) So this is your story. This is my story. Hear me. Because the story of the crown is really (laughs) about who gets to wear it. The story of the crown is about who gets to wear it. The people didn't want God to be their king then. And look what it cost them. And listen, when we don't want God to be our king now, it costs us, doesn't it? Listen, I've cost. I know that the people around me so many times, my lack of being able to deal with reality, don't want to look or handle or listen to criticism, it costs me. It costs others. A lack of connection to others, don't care about them, only care about myself, it costs them. A lack of morality costs me. It costs others because I've had substitute kings as well. I've wanted to wear the crown myself because listen when you wear the crown someone else always suffers doesn't it don't they it's easy isn't it to point the finger at visible leaders their character flaws writ large Saul like David like Solomon like our nation's leaders at times and it's easy to see that when others wear the crown it costs us but what about you what about me What do we do with all of this? Well, centuries later, another king would come to Israel. And do you know what he called himself? He called himself the greater Solomon. He said, I'm the best of what Solomon should have been. What Solomon should have been, I am that. I am the ultimate wise, just king. That's what Jesus Christ called himself. But do you know what the people also called Jesus the king? The people called him the greater David. He was so powerful. He could heal the lame and the sick, the blind, the brokenhearted. He gave hope to the people. And then then one day, this king Jesus, he rode to the capital city of his own nation. Listen, only kings ever ride into capital cities like he did. But do you know what he rode in on? A donkey. Not in a chariot, not on a race horse or a thoroughbred, but on the animal of the poor. And though he was cheered on Monday and Tuesday, by Thursday, the leaders had him on trial. And by Friday, they had killed the king. Why? It's because humans have a cosmic authority problem. We want to wear the crown, and if we're honest, it's really because we're scared. We're scared God is going to abuse us or not let us have our fun, or maybe he'll take advantage of us in some way. But Oh, but look, look at the king of kings, Jesus. What does he do with his power? In other words, I'm asking you, what is God like? What is God like? That's what Jesus came to show us. What does this king do with his power? Come on. He heals by the healing of his hands. Shall the rightful king be known, Tolkien said. This king teaches. He, he comes to, to, to give, not to get, not to enrich himself, but to enrich you. By his stripes we're healed. By his poverty we might become rich. He feeds the poor. He speaks up for those who can't speak for themselves. What's God like? Come on. What kind 
kind of a king is he? He's showing you. He's the only king who won't turn you into a slave. He's come to free you and me from the ultimate tyranny, the tyranny of ourselves and our own small and petty lives. Listen, human beings will have a king. C.S. Lewis says, deny, you know, deny us food, we'll gobble poison. We'll, we'll put up a king like the Israelites did, or we'll make ourselves king. But in the end, no one but Jesus can really bear the weight of the crown. Saul couldn't. David couldn't, Solomon couldn't, and neither can you or me. Don't you see? There's only one human being who's ever lived who could do what you and I couldn't do. Bear the weight of the crown. He's come to free you, listen, from all the lack of reality, lack of morality, lack of connection. He is perfect morality, wasn't he? Our connection to God. He's spiritual reality himself. He died. He gave it all up. What kind of a crown did he wear? Come on, a crown of thorns, right? The king of the Jews, they called him. They mocked him. Why did he do this? To prove you can trust him. To heal our cosmic authority problem. And this king was resurrected, proving that his reign will never, ever end. Will you and I take off our crowns and cast them at his feet? There was a young British man by the name of Patrick. He was captured. He was trafficked by pirates in the 6th century when he was 16. And he worked for six years as a slave. And there he became a Christian. He met Jesus and he later escaped. But he came back home and he felt God speaking to him to go back to Ireland where he had been a slave and be a missionary to the very people who had forced him into slavery, stolen years of his life. And so he did it. And in doing this, he brought the gospel to a new nation, to Ireland. What does it look? What did it look like for Jesus to wear the crown in Patrick's life? It looked like walking a painful path of forgiveness, of being ignored and despised by his own family, his own brothers and sisters and parents. It means following Jesus, though it's painful. And out of this, out of his obedience and love for Jesus, Patrick prayed this prayer. And may this prayer be ours today as well. He prayed this. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Oh, he prayed this prayer. Because Jesus become king in his own heart. Can we do the same today? Let's go to the Father in prayer, asking for his grace now to touch us.